fan of Christ. Revelation chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. Please stand, stand together with me out of honor to God and his word as I read. Revelation 16, beginning in verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Thank you. You may be seated. Looking at the route of Antichrist. First of all, uh, by way of introduction, Jesus will return to earth one day. We just sang the king is coming. Jesus will return to earth one day. Now, don't get confused. His rapture is in the air. Billy started us uh, off with looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Jesus' rapture is in the air, which says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So his rapture occurs in the air, but his return is on the ground. Jesus touches down on the earth. Why? Well, first of all, to battle Antichrist and his army. That's why Jesus is coming back, touching down this earth, to battle the Antichrist and his army. It's interesting to note as kind of a side that the God of the New Testament makes war just like the God of the Old Testament. You know, some people, when they read through the Bible, they'll say, well, the God in that Old Testament, he was kind of mean and he was always making war and stuff, but the God of the New Testament, he's real nice and so on. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. We have one God from Old Testament and New Testament, and the God of the New Testament makes war just like the God of the Old Testament. If you look in the Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, we'll get to this later, it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. Watch this. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. So the God of the New Testament makes war just like the God of the Old Testament. Jesus will touch down on this earth to battle the Antichrist and his army and to establish his earthly kingdom known as the millennium. Armageddon is not the end of the world. Armageddon is the end of the world as we know it. Because Armageddon ushers in a new and glorious epoch in earth's history. It's called the millennium, where Jesus will rule on this earth for 1,000 years. So that's your introduction. So as we look at Armageddon, the route of Antichrist, let's look at preparing for Armageddon, preparing for Armageddon. The word Armageddon, actually, it appears in verse 16, back of our text in chapter 16 of Revelation, verse 16, it says, and he gathered them together to a place in the Hebrew tongue called Armageddon. Well, Armageddon is actually two words in Hebrew, Har Megiddo. Har means mountain, and Megiddo is the name of the mountain. So it's Mount Megiddo. Here's a view from Mount Megiddo looking out across the Megiddo Valley. Uh, and it's also the site of several Israelite victories in the Old Testament. If you're into maps, this shows you in relationship to Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, Jordan River, where Megiddo is. This is that place, Armageddon, the mountain of Megiddo. So now we know where it's going to take place. But notice from verse 12, the Euphrates River is dried up. It is dried up. If you look at verse 12, it says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up. And so the Euphrates is dried up. Why? That is so... 200 million men from an eastern army, we don't know what that army is, but 200 million men from an eastern army mustered by angels will cross that river. Again, we know about those, that army because of Revelation 9, 
9, verses 14 and 16, it says, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates, and the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, a day, and a month, and a year to slay a third part of mankind, and the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000. So in preparing for Armageddon, the Euphrates River is dried up. Now, I don't know if you saw this article this week about China. It was about their military. I just want to read what the, the headline is, Armed to the Teeth, why China's unstoppable 175 euro military is now the biggest threat to world order and the West can't keep up. But when you read that article, you find out China currently only has 2 million soldiers. Now, John says there's going to be 200 million. China only has 2 million soldiers. As I thought about that, I thought about how China and Indian, India together have a combined population of 2.8 billion people. I think we know where this eastern army of 200 million is going to come from. Because 200 million is nothing compared to 2.8 billion. Billion, okay? But anyway, the eastern, the, excuse me, the Euphrates River is dried up and that allows this eastern army access to Armageddon. If they were to use bridges to cross the Euphrates, that would be too slow. The armies would bottleneck and it would take them forever to get to Armageddon. But with the Euphrates River dried up, they'll be able to cross over all the length of the entire river and they will have instant access to Armageddon. Now, you may or may not know this, and this started a long time ago. The Euphrates River even now has 30, more than 30 dams have been built and they are capable of halting the flow of the river. And so if they were to turn all those dams off that there already exist, there would be no flowing Euphrates River. That's already existing now. But I don't know if you've read, like I did this week, about the Euphrates River, blaming climate change. And I don't want to talk about that, but they're blaming climate change. The Euphrates is expected to be completely dried up by 2040. That's 16 years from now. Scientists are telling us, they're watching what's happening, the levels of that river. It will could be completely dry, not with the dams, just completely dry 16 years from now. Now, John wrote over 2,000 years ago, Euphrates River would be dried up. We have the technology today to dry it up ourselves with the dams that are already there. But scientists tell us it's going to be dry anyway in 2040. The world armies are going to be gathered as they prepare for Armageddon. They're going to be gathered, first of all, by demonic influence. Look in verse 14. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And so they, the world armies are gathered by demonic influence, but also by divine appointment. Look at verse 16 I already read. And he gathered them together to a place called Armageddon. And so this world army gets together by demonic influence and by divine appointment. So preparing for Armageddon. Secondly, I want us to look at arriving at Armageddon. Arriving at Armageddon, Jesus arrives at Armageddon. I told you he's coming back. He's going to touch down on this earth. He arrives at Armageddon. But he doesn't arrive alone. Jude says he brings some folks with him. Look what it says. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So he, Jesus returns. He does not return alone. It says there tens of thousands of his saints will accompany him. Again, the idea is repeated in Zechariah 14.5, this prophecy that says, And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. 
And then Jesus, speaking of this, in Matthew 25, 31, says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So he is returning. He's not returning alone. Tens of thousands of his saints will accompany him. What does that mean? Well, it's an innumerable multitude, an innumerable multitude. The largest specific number available in the Greek language back in the first century when Revelation was written was 10,000. So if you, wanted to, if you were using the Greek of the day, and the biggest number you could possibly write down would be 10,000. But notice Jude says 10,000s. He says it's more than 10,000. 10,000 is the biggest number that I can write in Greek, but I'm making it plural because there's going to be an innumerable multitude coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now John further describes Jesus' arrival in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. He says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so John says, here's a little bit more detail. He said, I want you to know the rider on the horse is known as faithful and true. In verse 13, he says, he is the word of God. And in verse 16, he says, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In verse 12, John says, the rider has eyes flaming with fire. The rider is wearing many crowns. Why? He's not a king. He's the king of kings. Verse 12 says, the rider is wearing a name that only he knows. Verse 13 says, the rider is wearing blood-stained clothes. And in verse 14, it says the rider is followed by an army on white horses. Now, the army is wearing white, all white. Well, you say, well, John is using symbolic language there. White is symbolic of purity. Yes, there's another reason. They're not going to be getting dirty in battle. When you're with the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going to get dirty. You can wear white right into the heat of battle. You're not getting dirty. Now, glorified believers will be among this returning throng. All these, when the Lord Jesus comes back, he's not coming back alone. Glorified believers will be among this returning throng. We're going to be riding horses too. Now, I've only ridden a horse one time. Didn't go well. <laughs> Did not go well. I now have great respect for horses. I'm scared to death of horses. But when I come back with the Lord Jesus Christ one day, I'll be riding a horse. Now, I may have a very scared look on my face, but I will be riding a horse. How can I ride a horse if I'm afraid of him? Remember, we will be changed at the rapture into perfect glorified beings. When we are raptured out of here, we will be changed into perfect glorified beings. And glorified beings that know how to ride a horse. Glorified beings that aren't afraid to ride a horse like I am now. But please understand, to be changed in the rapture, that requires us to be changed now. I can't tell you when the rapture is going to be. But whenever it is, whether it's today or tomorrow or a thousand years from now, if you want to be changed in the rapture, you need to be changed now. You say, well, how do I get changed now? You receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, that he was buried for your sins, and the third day he rose again from the dead. And when you truly believe in Jesus as your Savior, you receive him as your Savior, you are now ready for the rapture whenever it happens. But if you want to be changed in the rapture, you've got to be changed now by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see preparing for Armageddon. We see arriving at Armageddon. Thirdly, 
I want us to look at battling at Armageddon, battling at Armageddon. The entire world army is camped at Armageddon. Again, if we look at Revelation, we're reminded in Revelation 16, 16, he gathered them together to a place called Armageddon. In Revelation 19, 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. They have gathered to battle the king of kings. This is no last-ditch effort. This is not pie in the sky. Well, I hope we can beat him. They really believe they can defeat the Lord Jesus Christ. These armies of the earth have gathered together and they really believe they will be victorious over Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. They have their God and King, the Antichrist. They have a huge army. They have advanced weapons technology. Hey, they have everything. They are undefeatable, they think. But perhaps like me, you would ask, why didn't they just read the Bible to know how this battle is going to end? Why didn't they just pick up a Bible and just go to the end and see that it doesn't go so well for them. Why do they do that? That's because the rise of Antichrist has been preceded by a great apostasy. A great apostasy. Paul talks about that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Look what it says. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there first come a falling away. That's the apostasy. First, and that the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Now again, we, in this series, we've talked about how one of the beasts, the Antichrist, his name is the man of sin or the son of perdition. But notice what it says. It's not going to happen until there's a falling away. There's an apostasy first. Many churches today are apostate. They are teaching works-based salvation. You've got to be good enough. They are teaching there's multiple ways to get to heaven, not only through Jesus Christ. They are preaching and teaching homosexual acceptance and blessing. They have engendered biblical inadequacy, undermining the authority and veracity of Scripture, beginning with the very first verse. They say, we no longer trust the Bible, and you shouldn't trust it either. And they start with Genesis 1-1, the very first verse that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they start with that verse, and they say, that's not true. Science has proven, which is a lie, science has proven Genesis 1-1 is not true. So if you can't believe the very first verse of the Bible, it'd be very easy to convince others that the rest of the Bible it ain't true either. Churches are undermining the truth of Scripture beginning with the very first verse. Let me tell you what I believe. And I love science, true science. I believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You show me a scientist that was there when God created that was there when it was the Big Bang or whatever they say. Not any scientist was there. You know who was there? God. And he left us a written record. He said in the beginning, I created it. That's what I believe. And I guarantee you that is science. But anyway, why didn't these people just read the Bible? Instead of going through this big uh, battle, why didn't they just read the Bible? Well, apostasy of the churches. Secondly, Eschatological prophecies are interpreted as already fulfilled or symbolic. So all these end-time prophecies, eschatological, that just means end times, all these prophecies have been interpreted as already fulfilled or symbolic. So when you talk about the rapture, a lot of churches out there say, well, no, that's just symbolic. That's not for real. Or when you talk about Antichrist, no, Antichrist was fulfilled. That was, that was one, of the, uh, one of the Roman emperors. We don't need to think about a future person. Or the millennium, oh, the millennium is just the word thousand, the number thousand, that's just symbolic. That's not something real. So they take all these eschatological prophecies and they say, you know, they're already fulfilled or they're just symbolic. Don't believe it. 
I would tell you, the church has not fully apostatized, but we are watching it happen. We are watching it happen as they take the truth of Scripture and just explain it away in whatever way they choose to do so. We are watching it happen in our very day and time. So again, why haven't they just read the Bible and know how this battle ends? Why do they go to all the trouble? Well, first of all, there's an apostasy. Secondly, the Bible is disbelieved and discarded. Scholars in the last century began demythologizing the Bible through higher criticizing, planting seeds of doubt. So they went through the entire Bible and they said, well, this didn't really happen. Uh, this is just kind of a story. You're not expected to think that it's true. Or this here, this did happen, but this, uh, this didn't happen. So they went through and they took out all the myths. That's what I mean by demythologizing. And so they began demythologizing the Bible through higher criticizing, higher criticism. Let me stop and say this. You don't criticize the Bible. The Bible criticizes you. Even today. How many people really read the Bible on a regular, daily basis? I know you hear it from the pulpit all the time. I tell you, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. How many people do that? Even in the churches, how many people read their Bibles every day? And we're not necessarily talking about at Armageddon people in the churches. We're talking about people mostly who are not in the church. Well, people in the churches aren't reading the Bible. I guarantee people outside the church aren't reading their Bibles either. So to ask the question, why don't they just read the Bible and see how this battle ends? Well, first of all, there's apostasy. Secondly, the Bible is disbelieved and discarded. And you may remember, I told you this along the way, uh, when the Antichrist comes, Christianity will be illegal. It will be illegal. And so people aren't going to have ready access to Bibles to read like you and I currently have today. But let's see what happens in the battle. Jesus enters the battle on a white horse from heaven. Let me read it again. Chapter 19 and verse 11. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Jesus enters this battle on a white horse from heaven. Now imagine the world's army. Imagine their laughter as they see their opponent, Jesus Christ, showing up apparently unarmed, riding a horse, facing the largest and most sophisticated military force ever assembled. They're all ready. They're like, okay, I don't know who this Jesus is, but when he shows up, we are going to dominate. We are going to have victory. And then here he comes on a horse with no weapon. They're going to laugh. This is ridiculous. Why do we have all these weapons? He's on a horse. But notice verse 15 says the rider's sword is the word of God. The rider's sword is the word of God. Here's where we see the creative word becomes a destructive word. The very word that created the heavens and the earth. Jesus said, let there be light, let there be this, let there be that, so on. The creative word now becomes the destructive word. And it may look like he doesn't have a weapon, but his words, his mouth is the very word of God and the, the creative word becomes a destructive word. He annihilates the world's army. Look in verse 21. It says, and the remainder were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth. He annihilates the world's army. The birds are invited to feast on the carnage. Look at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 19. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together to the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. In the final analysis, no real battle actually occurs. I used to be afraid of the Battle of Armageddon. 
I remember the church we went to in Texas, and they would talk about the end times, the Battle of Armageddon. They showed a movie. I forget what it was called, like Taken or something like that, uh, back in the 70s. But anyway, a long time ago. And I was scared to death of Armageddon. I was like, I hope I'm not around for that. But read the scriptures. Jesus speaks the word. It's over. It's over. The battle is almost over before it even begins. Paul describes the battle here in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Look at this. And then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Paul says Jesus speaks, Jesus shines, and Jesus succeeds. It's really simple. It's really simple. And then after this, punishment is executed. The beast and false prophet experience hell alive. Look in verse 20 of chapter 19. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These were both cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. The beast and false prophet experience hell alive. Now, I don't know the answer to this, but death somehow prepares a soul for eternity, but the beast and false prophet receive no preparation. They are cast alive into the burning fire. And then, as I already mentioned in verse 21, the rest of the world army experiences death, all at the hand of the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Summarizing Revelation 19, verses 11 to 15, I shared this with you last week, but summarizing all this, Verses 15 and 16, we see the appearing of Christ. Verse 19, we see the gathering of kings. Verse 20, we see the burning of counterfeits. That's the beast and false prophet. And in verse 21, we see the killing of combatants. So let me ask this. What is the point of this non-battle? I mean, I told you it's basically over before it even begins. What's the point of this non-battle? Well, number one, it demonstrates the futility of man. You've got the best and strongest military ever assembled, and they are decimated by the very word of God. Antichrist was Earth's all-powerful global dictator. Antichrist was able to harness technology, giving him global control over communication, global control over economics, global control over surveillance. Oh, by the way, did you see this article this week? I'll read it to you. It's in the Daily Mail. Big Brother satellite capable of zooming in on anyone from space is set to launch in 2025. Now, I already knew that we in the United States, we have technology to read uh, license plates from space. I know we can already do that. But this is facial recognition from space. Nobody can hide anymore. No matter where you are in the face of the earth, they can see you, they can see your face, and as the artist has demonstrated here, they'll get your, your name, your information, everything from space. You know where to run and hide. You got to come outside sometime. That launches next year. Next year. Again, it's probably a good idea, but in the wrong hands, dangerous. Dangerous. But anyway, the Antichrist was able to harness technology, give him global control over communication, economics, surveillance, military. And yet, all this power and technology was not even a speed bump to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it didn't slow him down at all. All this advanced stuff, all these, all these people from all over the world ready to fight, Jesus shows up on a horse and it doesn't slow him down, not a bit. He just wipes them out with the word of his mouth. And so why have this non-battle? Well, it demonstrates the futility of man. 
Secondly, it showcases the victory of God. I told you before that white symbolizes purity, but it also symbolizes victory. And know this, when you are on God's side, you're on the winning side. Whether you talk about Armageddon, whether you talk about now, when you are on God's side, you are on the winning side. So why have this non-battle? Well, demonstrates the futility of man, showcases the victory of God. And thirdly, it removes all obstacles to the establishment of the millennial kingdom. As I started out saying, Jesus will rule on this earth for 1,000 years. And this final battle removes all obstacles to the establishment of that kingdom. Jesus will reign as earth's true king. The millennial kingdom will fulfill all of God's Old Testament promises and prophecies about the earth in general and the land of Israel in particular. For 1,000 years, the Prince of Peace will rule over the earth at peace from the city of peace, Jerusalem. And don't misunderstand, this is not heaven. The millennium is not heaven, but it will be like heaven on earth. And so why have this non-battle? Demonstrating the futility of man, showcasing the victory of God, and removing all obstacles to the establishment of the millennial kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as we wrap up this series on the Antichrist, looking finally at the route of Antichrist, what happens to him? <laughs> He's routed. He's defeated. He's destroyed. We looked at preparing for Armageddon. We know that Har Armageddon is Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo. We know where that is now. We know the Euphrates River will be dried up. It can happen already right today just by dams we have. We already know scientists tell us 16 years, it's dried up anyway. That prepares the way for a 200 million man army to come from the east. We don't know what nation, but I'm telling you, China and India, with 2.8 billion people, they can easily raise a 200 million man army. Then we looked at arriving at Armageddon. Jesus shows up, but not alone. He's bringing me, for one. I hope he's bringing you, too. He's bringing me. I'll be the one on the horse, scared to death. I'll know how to ride a horse. I won't be afraid because I'll be glorified. Because in the rapture, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take me. He's going to change me. And he will change and take you as well by grace through faith in him. Remember, to be changed in the rapture, you need to be changed now. Then we looked at battling at Armageddon. The entire world army is camped there at Armageddon. They've got the Antichrist. They've got their weapons. They've got everything. And Jesus shows up on a horse, and they laugh. But Jesus gets the last laugh because he wipes them out with the word of his mouth because his sword is the word of God. Beast and false prophet, they are thrown into hell. Everybody else in the army gets killed. Why have this non-battle? to show how futile man is, to show how victorious God is, and to remove every obstacle to the establishment of the millennial kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hear a chime. It must be noon. It must be, and it's over. And I'm done too, so that's fine. Whoever, thank you for setting that alarm, but I'm already good. The invitation this morning is very clear, very simple. If you've not yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to receive him right here, right now, today. Invite him into your heart. Believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, that he was buried and he rose again the third day. 
If you want to be part of the rapture, you want to be riding horses with me, you need to be changed now. And you can only be changed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And obviously the rest of us who are rapture ready, we have received Christ as Savior. Well, there's a lost and dying world out there that needs to hear that the Lord Jesus Christ loves them and died for them and rose again for them. And they can ride horses with us too and be part of that amazing throng when Jesus comes back. For this non-battle, it's really a non-battle, but it will be amazing to be on the winning side. I'll be there. By grace through faith, you'll be there. Make sure you're there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this exciting time that is coming up. We thank you for your victory. First of all, your victory over our sin through the cross, but then your victory over the Antichrist and the world's armies. Lord, we are grateful to be on your winning side. There may be those in this room, there may be those watching online who have yet to receive Christ as Savior. Give them grace and faith to believe. And for the rest of us who do believe, may we share not the Antichrist, but Christ with them, that they may know your love, your forgiveness, your eternal life, made available only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.